0: This is a podcast from Minute Media. Silver and Black Flashback with your host, author of the Raiders Encyclopedia, Rich Schmelter. All right, Raider Nation. Here we are once again to celebrate more of our beloved team's glorious history. But before we do that, as always, thank you so much, Murph. Is he not the best? Incredible host of an an incredible podcast, the best Raiders one out there. And thank you, all the incredible members of Raider Nation, the greatest group of fans in any sport. I don't care what any other fan bases claim, Raider Nation is the only one worth a damn. So here we are once again for another episode of Silver and Black Flashback, a show dedicated to our awesome-as-hell band of outlaws, embraced and feared, throughout the years on their way to dominance and intimidation over the entire professional football world. I mean, come on, during the Raiders' 20 years of total dominance, just how many teams feared them and wanted to be one of them? Easy answer, folks, all of them. Damn, I love this stuff. And now, on with this episode entitled, A Pair of Hawks, One King, and a Sexy Nude Jogger. Intrigued? I sure hope so, and no need to wait around any longer thinking, what the hell is this guy talking about? Now, the title seems like some new poker game, but do not look for it in any casino. It will not be there. The pair of hawks mentioned pertains to two former players, not biologically related, named Hawkins, just bonded just the same in the silver and black bloodline. The first was Wayne Hawkins an offensive lineman and one of only 20 men that played in the full 10-year existence of the American Football League. He was also one of only seven players that remained on one team during that time. And to add one more fact about the AFL and the Raiders, of the 20 men that played the entire run of the league, five wore the silver and black sometime during the 1960s. Wayne Hawkins was born on June 17, 1938, in Jordan, Montana, and the family eventually settled in Redding, California, where Wayne attended Shasta High School. While anchoring the offensive line as a center during his senior season of 1955, he helped the Shasta Wolves finish second in the Golden Valley League. That same season also saw Hawkins earn second-team All-North California honors. It was then on to Stockton, California in the fall of 1956, as Wayne was one of 13 freshman football players entering the College of Pacific. During his time on the varsity football team from 1957 through 1959, Hawkins played center, guard, and tackle for head coach Jack Moose Myers. While at Pacific, Hawkins helped the Tigers to three straight winning seasons He missed part of the 1958 season with a knee injury, but then came back strong the following year, earning a spot as a tackle on the all-opponent team selected by the San Jose State Spartans. Also in his senior year of 1959, Hawkins received honorable mention on the all-coast second team. His solid play and leadership over his three seasons at Pacific earned him a place in the Pacific Athletics Hall of Fame in 1983. In 1960, considered undersized for a professional offensive lineman at six two hundred and forty pounds, did not sway the Raiders from taking a chance on Hawkins, signing him to a contract on April 14, 1960 to become a member of the original Oakland Raiders football team. Over the next 10 seasons, Hawkins started at right guard and proved that he was not undersized, but a hard-hitting, tough-as-nails performer. He played in 136 of the Raiders' 140 games during their time in the AFL, was a five-time selection to the AFL All-Star teams from 1963 to 1967, earned all AFL honors in 1966, and was a member of the Raiders' 1967 AFL Championship team. He was also selected to the all-time Raiders team. Hawkins and Jim Otto proved to be the anchors of the Raiders offensive line in the team's early days, opening holes for backs and protecting quarterback Tom Flores from harm on countless occasions. Near the end of his career, the hard-hitting guard was a part of an offensive line that had three future Hall of Famers on it in Otto, Gene Upshaw, and Art Schell. To say the least, he was tough, refusing to come off the field unless he could not stand up. In one game, Hawkins was blasted by massive six-foot, nine-inch defensive end Ernie the Big Cat Lad. His head hit the goalposts very hard, but he kept on playing. The following day, it was learned that Hawkins suffered a broken jaw from ear to ear. He had the jaw wired shut and started the next six games. Damn, tough is not the word to best describe that type of dedication. But wait, Raider Nation, here's another one. In a game against Denver, Hawkins was knocked unconscious early in the first quarter, and after sitting on the bench in a total daze for the rest of the first half, he returned to the field and played the entire second half. His thinking was that playing football was his job, so it was only the right thing to do to get back to it as soon as possible. An injury to his left knee in 1969 proved to finally put an end to his great career, and on April 13th, 1971, one day shy of the 11th anniversary of his signing with the Raiders, Wayne Hawkins retired. As a testament to his popularity with the team, a surprise retirement party organized by best friend Tom Flores was attended by a few hundred people ranging from former teammates, coaches, friends, and civic leaders. Hey, Hall of Fame Veterans Committee How about looking into getting Mr. Wayne Hawkins a bust among the game's immortals? Don't you think it's about time? A great story told by coach Tom Flores involved him and Wayne Hawkins. In the early days of the American Football League, most of the players were not well known. And one visit to Buffalo proved just that. A group of players, including Flores and Hawkins, went out to a small place and started talking to the locals gathered inside. Seeing that the Raiders were a new team, no one heard of them. The group tried to tell the people that they were professional football players, but not one person in the place believed them. In fact, one woman in the crowd thought that the truth was that they were truck drivers. Even though the group of Raiders tried like hell to convince people that they were really football players, they still did not believe them. Finally, it was felt by the players that it was better just to go along with the crowd, so the next night... When asked what they did, Flores, Hawkins, and Jim Otto simply said that they were truck drivers. Now, can you imagine this? Two future Hall of Famers in Flores and Otto, plus one of the AFL's all-time greats in Hawkins, posing as truck drivers because no one felt they were football players. While Wayne Hawkins was headed toward a new career off the field, a 12-year-old in Las Vegas was just getting started on his way to becoming a member of the Raiders a decade later. And that brings us to the other Hawkins featured on this episode. Frank Hawkins was without a doubt an absolute winner. An amazing talent on the football field and wrestling mat, Hawkins played on two state championship football teams and twice brought home the state wrestling title before going on to a college career that saw him earn All-America honors, break multiple school records, and all before earning a Super Bowl ring in 1983 with the Los Angeles Raiders. Wow, what an athletic resume Frank Hawkins delivered. Am I right or what? The city of Las Vegas, Nevada can easily lay claim to being the mecca of gambling in America and also the home of our badass Raiders. Las Vegas also has the bragging rights to calling Frank Hawkins one of the greatest high school and college athletes to ever come out of that city. Born in Las Vegas on July 3rd, 1959, Frank Hawkins attended Western High School, where his amazing athletic career blossomed. As a football player, he played cornerback as a junior and was a part of a Western team that posted an 8-2 record before winning the 1975 AAA Nevada State Championship. In his senior season of 1976, Hawkins assumed the starting halfback position after a school legend, Jesse Cook, graduated. Cook was the second-leading rusher in the state and its top scorer. Filling that void created by such an individual of Cook's status did not bother Hawkins. With a team based on a ground-oriented attack and a big, massive line, the 5'9", 170-pounder came up with several 100-yard rushing games, finishing with 730 yards and 14 touchdowns. He then led the Horace Smith-coached 9-1 Western Warriors to a second straight state championship over a powerful Reno High School team. In the championship game, Hawkins carried the ball 20 times for 131 yards and two touchdowns. For his efforts, Frank was honored with selection onto the AAA All-State First Team. After football season was over, Hawkins did not rest on his incredible accomplishments. Far from it. Wrestling at 148 and then 156 pounds, Hawkins posted a near-perfect 66-1 record and won two state championships. En route to those titles, he had to starve himself to stay 15 pounds under his natural body weight so that he could wrestle at those weights. It proved to give him a toughness that carried over to his time with the Raiders. Despite his dominance showing on the wrestling mat, it was football that came first in his life. His passion for football led him to the next level of competition at the University of Nevada, Reno, and Hawkins continued on with his amazing skills as a running back. In four seasons at Nevada, Reno, under head coach Chris Alt from 1977 through 1980, he gained 5,333 rushing yards, which at the time was the third-highest rushing total in college football history. He led all Division I AA running backs in rushing yards in 1979 and 1980, had a college football record of 21 straight games rushing for over 100 yards, and was named a Division I AA All-American three times. In 1978 and 1979, Hawkins helped Nevada reach the Division one AA semifinal round of the playoffs. While in college, he started doing some serious weight training. He bulked up his frame to 210 pounds, becoming a powerful 5 foot, 9 inch, 210 pound massive muscle able to bench press an amazing 485 pounds and squat 725 pounds. A 10th round draft pick by the Raiders in 1981, after rushing for all those yards in college, it seemed that Hawkins was a sure bet to quickly land a regular season roster spot. Unfortunately, at first, it was not meant to be. The Raiders released him during training camp, and he was not claimed by another NFL team. Undaunted, Hawkins was on his way to Canada to try his hand in the Canadian Football League, when he got a call that the San Francisco 49ers wanted him for a tryout. He worked out for the 49ers, but was not offered a contract. He then went back to Reno and took a job working with underprivileged children. While in the process of opening a gym in Reno for youngsters, he got another phone call, this time from the Raiders, who wanted him to fill a void created when fullback Mark Van Egan suffered a hamstring injury. He returned to the Raiders in the fourth game of the 81 season, played out the year, but was once again cut by the Raiders, this time on the final cut date in 1982. But he was brought back and played in all the team's nine games during a strike-shortened 1982 season. He was then back with the team in 1983 for the Raiders' successful run at a Super Bowl championship. Frank was an intense competitor. He was tough, durable, and a great short-yardish fullback. He was a hard hitter and an excellent blocker. All those traits allowed his teammates to consider him to be a great team leader. He played in 88 games for the Raiders and started in 34 of them. He was the team's second-leading rusher three straight seasons from 1983 through 1985, finishing second only behind the great Marcus Allen. In his time with the Raiders, Hawkins ran for 1,659 yards and 15 touchdowns. He also caught 97 passes for 691 yards and three touchdowns. Hawkins was released by the Raiders on June 6, 1988, after seven successful seasons. He then returned home to Las Vegas, served as a city councilman and director of operations for the Las Vegas NAACP Center, in addition to other business ventures. The bridge between these two Hawks was Tom Flores. As a player, he was teammates and good friends with Wayne, both at Pacific and in Oakland. They also were in each other's weddings. And two decades after becoming an original Raider with Wayne Hawkins, Flores served as a championship head coach to Frank Hawkins. And now we go away from the field and high above the action for this segment of the show. From the first time the human voice was used to relay information across the airways back in the 1920s, the sports broadcasting profession was an important part of the medium known as radio. Throughout American cities, great and small, folks might not remember some of the athletes, but rest assured, more often than not, they can recall the voices that came through their radios calling the event. In Oakland, and for a decade in Los Angeles, When asked to recall the king of professional football broadcasters, without reservation, it was Bill King. With his famous catchphrase of Holy Toledo used to describe all the incredible moments created by our Raiders, Bill King sat on the broadcasting throne for Raiders games from 1966 through 1992, calling the action during the team's glory days. King's career began at a time when many of radio's pioneers were winding down their days of calling the action. This allowed Bill King to become a bridge that merged the pioneers to the present-day collection of broadcasters, earning him a lasting place in a lineage of legends. Born in Bloomington, Illinois on October 6, 1927, Wilbur Bill King began his illustrious broadcasting career while serving in the military near the end of World War II. Stationed on the island of Guam, King worked for the Armed Forces Radio Network, where he relayed the play-by-play of sporting events as they came to him off the wire services. He did such a great job that it seemed like the action on the field was being observed firsthand and not thousands of miles away. After returning home from the military, King went to work in Illinois, broadcasting high school sports and minor league baseball games. He elevated himself to doing college basketball games for Bradley University and basketball and football games at the University of Nebraska. King then moved to California in 1958 at the same time as baseball's New York Giants. The timing was right, and he landed a job announcing for the San Francisco Giants. Another team that moved west provided King with another opportunity to cover professional sports. The Philadelphia Warriors moved to San Francisco in the early 1960s and from 1962 to 1983 King served as the team's play-by-play man. In 1966 King was brought into the silver and black fold as play-by-play man for our Raiders. Perched high above the action sporting his trademark handlebar mustache and beard His voice called the greatest moments in Raiders history until the conclusion of the 1992 season. He became an announcing triple threat when he was wooed by the owners of the Oakland A's to serve their team. He accepted the job, and from 1981 through 2005, he called the action with his usual rapid-fire delivery. His dedication and passion was felt each and every time he sat behind the mic. That dedication had King study very hard every day, so he was able to give his audience all the current information on the team he was announcing for. He always carried a book with him on road trips and was a fan of Russian history and literature. He also enjoyed ballet and jazz. Throughout his legendary career, King called the action for an NBA championship in the spring of 1975, our Raiders three Super Bowl championships in 1976, 1980, and 1983, in three World Series from 1988 through 1990. The voice of the great Bill King was silenced on October 18, 2005, with his death at the age of 78. But the memories he created will never diminish. In honor of this legendary announcer, the broadcast booth in the Oakland Coliseum was renamed after him on April 2, 2006. Holy Toledo, long live the King! And now for our final story on this episode. Now, I guarantee Bill King did not call the action of one brazen young lady's efforts to enjoy a brief moment of absolute freedom from the restricting confines of clothing. However, of course, I cannot speak for the great Bill King, but I feel that he would have rang out with a classic, holy Toledo, and for good reason. She was amazing in her effort, as well as in the nude. During a practice session in the 1970s, a local stripper was paid $50 to perform, not a dance, but a run. And not only a run, but one in the nude. She was more than willing to give the team something to remember and add yet another wild tale to the colorful history of our beloved Raiders. She put on a pair of socks and tennis shoes and was instructed to jog around the team's two practice fields. Well, it was time to deliver the goods, so to say. The gate of a fence around the field opened just enough to allow the naked lovely entrance to the area. And there she was, in all her glory, gorgeous and totally naked with an incredible body. So this magnificent young woman starts her jog over the entire length of the field. She then turned around and started to run on the other field, but began to get a bit winded. So she started walking the rest of the way. Now this allowed more time to savor the experience. According to different sources, it was either Ted Hendricks or Phil Vilipiano that staged the event. Well, either way, both were outstanding linebackers and first-class pranksters. Whichever one arranged it, way to go. And what a way to close out this episode, right? Well, this might be the end of our time together for this episode. But please come back for many more stories from our beloved Raiders winning in wild history. And until that time, when we get back together again very soon, I boast from the bottom of my heart with all the silver and black pride inside of me that I love you, Raider Nation!